Hi, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Robbins, and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium. Here, we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. On today's show, I have Dr. Tobin Hart. Dr. Hart is a father, partner, author, and spiritual ally. He is a professor in a most unusual psychology department at the University of West Georgia. This department is a radical place where knowledge, wisdom, and even love are on the menu as we explore the depth of consciousness and society. He is also co-founder and chair of the Child Spirit Institute, a nonprofit educational and research hub dedicated to understanding and nurturing the spirituality of children and adults. Dr. Hart is constantly drawn back to where psychology, spirituality, and education come together. He tends to draw insight through multiple views ranging from ancient wisdom traditions to the intimate little stories all around and within us to the front edge of science. He finds himself trying to feel and follow these resonances that lead to a sense of communion. Dr. Hart is fascinated by the space created in the paradox and tries to hold on to a sense of wonder. He believes in the need for a balance of love, wisdom, presence, and creation. I'm honored to welcome Dr. Tobin Hart to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast today. Thank you, Amy. So I think I said to you when we spoke in our pre-little call that I I definitely might have landed at the wrong psychological institution for my graduate training because I think I probably would have been better served where you teach. But um, I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today. And today we're going to talk a little bit about empaths, which I know is a particular area of research for you. And this is a term I feel like that's been thrown around a lot lately. So can you talk to us about what exactly is empathy? Yeah, I don't know if anybody can say exactly what it is, right? It's, uh, in fact, one recent uh, book listed eight different definitions of empathy that's collected from the field. But what we, what we know pretty well is that it is this ability to feel into another. That's what the word means, literally from German, to feel into. And it is this sense of uh, being sensitive to, especially to the emo- emotional content of other people. And so what does it mean to be an empath? Yeah, so this, this word has been thrown around a lot. There isn't really anything in the, or almost anything in the psychological, the former psychological literature, but there is a lot out there on the web, right? People talk about this a lot, uh, often. There's a lot of self-help literature and websites about it. So all of us have empathic capacity. All of us have the ability to feel into one degree or another other, other folks, what's going on with other people. But some of us are at this deep end of the pool, and some of us are at the other end, right? And the folks at the deep end have this particular sensitivity, and I think we can just call it that, this sensitivity towards emotional content of other people, especially emotional content. Mm-hmm. So it might be that somebody who's uh, been named an empath is somebody, maybe they've named themselves self that, but uh, it may be somebody who's just always picking up the vibes or the feelings of other people 
they might walk into a room and and uh, not be sure what's going on, but know that there's a lot going on. And often they have trouble distinguishing even initially between their own emotional experience and those of others. So an empath really is somebody who's got deep emotional sensitivity uh, and this empathic ability, this ability to read other people, to feel into other people, to to resonate uh, with other people. Is that something that you need to learn how to manage over time? Because I know in therapy, we often talk with people about having boundaries. And it would seem that if you are an empath, that other people's emotional states can be very overwhelming if you can't recognize that what's theirs and what's yours. Yeah, you've really said exactly the the central initial hub of this, right? I mean, what's mine and what's theirs? And, mm-hmm. and this is something that seems to be innate, that little kids have this experience. In fact, the empathy or responsiveness of infants even in a, uh, you know, in a newborn ward, one child starts crying and often other children start crying. And that's often called uh, global empathy. Um, in the literature, it's also referred to as emotional contagion, where mm-hmm. one has an emotion and you pick it up from someone else. And this is, this is really characteristic of somebody who's at the deep end of emotional sensitivity. And so, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the first and foremost question with this is what's mine and what's not mine? And so that begins a kind of self-development, I think, of, uh, or sometimes therapeutic development of, of folks uh, trying to develop some mastery or at least some management of this sensitivity. Uh, one thing that all folks at this deep end have in common is what we would call permeability. Just as you've said, this, this boundary permeability so that things leak in and it, it, uh, initially can be tremendously confusing. Mm-hmm. Folks may find themselves in a mood or find their body aching in a particular way. Maybe there's a lot of anxiety or they have a pain somewhere and they don't know where it's coming from. And it doesn't seem to be coming from them, but this seems to be characteristic of this emotional contagion or this ability to sort of reach in or at least pick up the, the uh, material from other people, especially emotional material. And what is the difference between, I know in your literature, you talk about empathy or being an empath versus being compassionate. Um, And so can you kind of differentiate those and also empathy versus intuition or being an empath versus being intuitive? Like, how do you differentiate those? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great, another great question. And it's, one of the most interesting things to me is the last 15 years have seen an incredible uptick in the interest in this. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Uh, we were writing about this maybe 25 years ago, even uh, when I became a 25 or 30 years ago, when I became a therapist, I began to notice for me how I was, uh, you know, experiencing empathy with clients. And then, so I wrote a little bit about it. It was interesting. But the last 15 years have just been flourishing, and I think, uh, in this field. So I'm, I'm wondering what that says about culture, you know, what it says about our needs this time, what it, what it says about our own evolution as a species these days. Um, 
So in answer to your question, one of the, the key things is what's the difference between empathy and compassion, as you say. And so compassion generally and almost universally is described as this impulse to help. Mm. So it is this, this desire, uh, this willingness, uh, and really this, uh, this drive to be of help to someone else. So you see someone suffering, you see a little child drop their cherished ice cream cone on the sidewalk and drop into this horrible sort of, ah, you know. uh, Tragic response, right? Tragic response. (laughs) That's a trauma, tragic response. And uh, and you're ready to reach up and grab them or get them a new ice cream or anything to alleviate the the thing, right? So that's that's, uh, what we would consider compassion usually. Empathy, on the other hand, is, uh, is a component of compassion usually, but it's something that's a little different. And again, it is this feeling into that's reading the other. And so it's very interesting how these things sort of line up. On the one hand, you might feel into another. You may feel like there's some suffering here or some anger or some uh, pain, whatever it is some lust, some, you know, whatever it is, you might pick that up. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't automatically follow that you want, you'll want to alleviate that. That's the difference between empathy and compassion. Now, these days in the literature, folks will, professional helpers, teachers, this kind of thing, sometimes we talk about compassion fatigue, mm-hmm. where sometimes we talk about that as burnout, right? We're just burned out. I've, I've given enough, enough already. Right, right. Everything that seems like there's a tragedy every other day and I need to, I feel the need to do something to make it better. Yes. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm drained. I can't do enough. I'm, I need to be recharged. So I need to step away. But in fact, I don't think that's compassion fatigue. I don't think compassion ever fatigues. I think our, our desire or our, I should say, our impulse to help doesn't necessarily fatigue. We still feel that. But our empathy, I think we have empathy fatigue. I think we can get overwhelmed by, just as you say, by the volume and the intensity of the other's emotional experience and not be able to modulate, calibrate, and regulate our own emotional state. And so uh, new therapists uh, often have this. Old therapists often have this as well, right? So, or, or middle-aged therapists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and so that wasn't a jab at my oldness, right? <laughs> my age. <laughs> no. and, and so, uh, so I think that, that that distinction is, again, one of just absorbing, taking things in. Uh, that's the nature of empathy. Whereas compassion is actually this impulse to give out. And interestingly, this is, this is one of the, um, the techniques, I think, that's really helpful for folks sometimes. Sometimes we want to shut down when we're overwhelmed and, and need to, and sometimes we give too much. But sometimes just the, the little idea of, uh, oh, in Buddhism, for example, they talk about a, a compassion meditation, metta practice it's called. And uh, it's just this idea of wishing the other well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes something as simple as saying, may you find peace, may you be well, maybe, you know, whether this is in our mind or, or aloud, uh, sometimes that's enough to, to sort of change this flow of taking in with giving out. 
without and, having to give ourselves out. And just feeling like energetically you were contributing to the collective experience of peace or wellness or whatever it is that you don't have to individually go help build houses for, you know, people who just experienced a hurricane or something along those lines, but just sending that energetically out. Yes. And, 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 you know, all expressions of love, I would say are maximal. That is any expression of compassion, love is, is sufficient, you know, and it's, and it's, uh, abundant. And so the idea that we give a homeless person a smile, or we bring them a sandwich, or we start a homeless shelter, it doesn't matter. Hmm. It doesn't matter. The decision about how to use or apply that compassion is a strategic one. What do I have to give? What do I want to give? What can bring me joy as well as uh, service to the other? That's a, that's a strategic question. But the idea of giving something Again, sometimes it's just that glance or that nod, you know, and it's like, okay, we've just made exchange. By the way, I think sometimes that, you know, maybe, maybe this is all set up so that um, this evoking of compassion by others suffering is just that. It's uh, people have sort of, uh, this is a kooky sentiment, but people have volunteered to come in and suffer in some ways in order to evoke our compassion. Mm-hmm. Maybe the world works that way. I, I, right. I don't. I don't want to say that for sure, right? But but this idea that boy, as soon as we see somebody suffer, it triggers something in us, mm-hmm. and, and that that trigger is love. And so, what's tremendous service they are, uh, you know, when somebody is uh, is is so vulnerable as to be uh, suffering or in need in front of us. Mm-hmm. And there is this reciprocity, you know, maybe we give them something, but we know that they, we get something when we give, you know, that's nature of altruism. Right, right. And I think as a therapist, certainly the gifts that I've gotten from my patients, even though I've helped them probably far outweigh what they've gotten from me. Did I say that right? Yeah. Like they're, they're, me seeing their growth outweighs them growing themselves it's just you know a privilege yeah yeah exactly and i think most you know most uh, uh good therapists feel that way you know it's such a gift to be with somebody who's who's opening themselves and to help hold space for them and whatever little offering or technique or or holding we can offer is is just grace for us and, mm-hmm. and, and hopefully something for them too so yeah so then what how do you differentiate empathy and intuition so if we had two circles, uh, one is empathy, the other intuition, they would overlap lap quite a lot. Um, I think that we could say that there is uh, sometimes empathy is, uh, is intuitive and, and intuition involves empathy sometimes. But there's also some distinctions. I think empathy rests largely with the emotional content, although sometimes understanding can come with it, uh, whereas intuition often has, uh, uh, you know, we, we've sort of put together a gestalt of meaning or understanding or insight in some way uh, that isn't just emotional. Sometimes it's a, it's a bigger context. And by the way, the literature on empathy or uh, on uh, intuition is as vast and differentiated in definition as is that on empathy. 
Uh, you know, it means a lot of different things. Sometimes mm-hmm. it just means, okay, two ideas were sitting in the back of my mind somehow come together and I see them as an insight. Uh, and so that's the completion of a gestalt. That's one definition of intuition. On the other hand, uh, there's this, um, you know, somehow we've tapped a current, uh, this, this deep current of understanding or insight or, or a collective unconscious or something. So it ranges from the mystical to um, a simple sort of cognitive pulling together. So, so <laughs> just like empathy, there's a wide range of usually what we mean by intuition. Mm-hmm. Generally, you know, you and I talk about it as uh, non-rational knowing. Somehow we have insight all of a sudden or some big picture comes together. And so that, that's intuition. It's fantastic. Uh, empathy often is reserved more for the emotional content, I think. And mm-hmm. that when intuition comes in, it's actually putting more meaning, more understanding, more insight into it. Mm. I like that definition, non-rational knowing. I think that really speaks pretty clearly to the experience of having, whether you call it an insight or an intuitive experience, that it does feel like it's just comes from outside of you. In yeah, ways. yeah, and it comes, uh, and it comes in a lot of forms, right? A, a, a dream uh, might be it, or a flash of an insight, or reading a sign as a bird lands saying, what's that about? And it triggers some, some interior sort of questioning or, or something pops up. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's this wonderful mystery that we live in. Right. Mm-hmm. So. All the, all the answers that we still don't have. Right. Yeah. yeah. So can you talk through the five themes that you discovered in your research on empathy and walk us through briefly each one of those? Sure, and you're referring to a, a paper that's just come out on mm-hmm. empathy in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology, and it's called The Deep End of Empathy. So uh, even though this was, had been around for a long time for me and, and familiar, um, I wanted to – I still didn't see a lot of this in the literature. So a colleague and I uh, – decided we wanted some uh, more data on this, more specific data. So we interviewed a, a whole bunch of people uh, about who we all previously identified as empathic, deeply empathic, but also people who were really successful in the world. So we knew clinically and as teachers and so forth that a lot of folks really struggle with this. And in fact, my work with children, one of the things that we see is that uh, people who have let's say, undiagnosed uh, deep empathy and uh, em- deep empathy that hasn't been integrated or matured very well is they often have symptoms that look really pathological. For mm-hmm. example, they may be loners because they, they've got to stay away from all this. They may sleep all the time. They may look depressed because they, they, it's the only place for solace, you know, where they're not bombarded. Or anxious. Anxious, absolutely, because they're they're you know not able to filter all this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, people who are drug and alcohol abusers who are sometimes um, having to try to turn down the sensitivity in some way, uh, they often are empaths. Once we get to the sort of the bottom of this, and sometimes people who are who have hostile personalities, you know, have created this barbed perimeter by their 
their personality to, to sort of keep people away. So anyway, things that look like other things, you know, in the diagnostic panoply, uh, sometimes are about this sensitivity that's, that's unrecognized and undeveloped in some way. So anyway, so that's, that's one thing. And that really goes to this first thing, and that is this sense of permeability, that no matter what we're, uh, we're doing at this deep end, that everybody describes some ability of things really penetrating them. Mm. Sometimes it's just, uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's general, um, it could be anything, but also people often describe particular um, registers of sensitivity. So for example, they might be particularly attuned to threat, or they may be particularly attuned to um, uh, a, a kind of wounding of one sort or another. And sometimes that comes from their own history, that the, their own sensitivity. If you've grown up in an alcoholic family, for example, you're going to be particularly attuned to the same kind of frequencies that your parents or one parent had so that it's a kind of radar. So that in this sense, this, this, this gift of empathy is a radar, a protective radar. And you know before your father comes home that you've got to be on high alert. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes this permeability, again, is, is specific to a, uh, a, a, a certain emotional register or a certain range of emotional register. And, and so people will... will be particularly sort of tuned in and, and even vigilant and on guard for some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas other times it's just a kind of a general permeability and they can, they can pick up anything and, you know, there'll be a, a kid in a classroom and, and they'll be so attuned to the teacher's emotional state and the kids around them that they'll miss the lesson. Mm. They'll know about the, the teacher's emotional state, but they won't know what the lesson was. Right. Right. So, <laughs> and then what are, what are some of the other ones that you talk about? Yeah, so this, um, uh, and again, one of the ways to talk about that permeability in the literature is emotional contagion. Mm-hmm. You're picking up the vibes of somebody else and it just overwhelms in some way. So, that, so again, that's, uh, that's one thing. Uh, another, just one other little piece about that is that um, one of the interesting things that people will do, especially kids, who have this sensitivity is that they'll notice dissonance. That is, they'll notice a difference between what somebody is saying mm-hmm. and what is actually going on with them. And as a child, that can be really confusing because you're basically told, oh, don't pay attention to what's really going on. Just believe what I tell you. Mm-hmm. So what that does is actually inhibits their ability to develop and uh, the sensitivity uh, so that it's reliable for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, there is this, uh, you know, this sort of disconnect and they often have to sort of find a way back to it um, in adulthood. Yeah. And I think we so often as parents try to protect our kids from our real experience. Like I've had my son say to me before, mom, you seem really mad right now. And in that moment, I am mad and I'm questioning in my mind, well, do I tell him I'm mad? Because then it's going to lead to a whole discussion about what I'm mad about and that might be not appropriate for him to know. But in the same sense, in not telling him, I'm confusing him about how to recognize and read people's feelings and experiences. So 
Exactly so. Exactly so. And so this is a good lesson for parents in that way uh, of saying, look, exactly as you said, if you, you know, be truthful about it. You don't have to be overly Mm self-disclosing and inappropriately so, but be truthful about that. Often the conflict between uh, two parents uh, is often picked up by the child and then acted out. Family therapy knows this uh, from you know, the 70s on, that, uh, that the identified patient, that, that child is actually simply picking up the conflict of the parents and acting mm-hmm. out in some way, mm-hmm. unknowingly, unconsciously. And this, are, are there people, I mean, obviously empathy is a range. Are there people that are born without it? Is it like a gene that you either, you, you, you might not have it, like a sociopath? Yeah, that, that's one of the questions. The, 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 the psychopath or the sociopath often doesn't have compassion, but they do have empathy often. And that is they are able, in fact, the, what makes them so uh, insidious is they're often able to sort of uh, tune into what the other person wants or doesn't want, and therefore their sadism is, is built around that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but they, they would be lacking and not necessarily empathy always, but, but that's often what, what's confused. It's instead the compassion that's lacking with that. So, you know, there's some question about where do, where do people who are on the autistic spectrum fall in terms of empathy, that ability to uh, really read and decipher other folks' uh, emotions. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think we know that there's a whole continuum who knows whether there are folks at, uh, at the, 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 the shallow end of this that have absolutely new, no capacity for it. Um, one of the big pushes in the last uh, 15, 10 years has been to develop empathy in classrooms. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's both wonderful because we think that's the basis of moral development. As soon as you can understand somebody else, you're more likely to uh, treat them with more respect. It doesn't always work that way, though. Um, again, unless we develop this whole range of abilities around empathy, um, empathy can be overwhelming. And in fact, some folks argue, and there's some evidence, that developing empathy may make people less compassionate because they're so overwhelmed they have to, they have to get away from it. So this is why empathy in and of itself um, really has to be bundled, I think, with some of these other skills that we've been talking about, this ability to recognize what's mine and what's theirs, ability to create appropriate boundaries, ability to really refine it, you know, these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Such interesting stuff. Well, thank you so much today for your time. I really appreciate you breaking, breaking this all down for us today. Sure, my pleasure. Have a good day. Thank you. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? curious about what comes next and what it all means, you can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life, death, and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.